0: This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 155 of the iFreaks show. Today, on our panel,
1: we have no one. It's just me. It's just James. I've taken over. Uh, do not attempt to adjust your radio, there is nothing wrong. But we do have a guest today, and it is Ryan J. Salva. Ryan, can you tell us a little little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, man, totally. Uh, Well, first, thanks for having me on. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and all of your developers on the podcast. Super cool. As you said, my name is Ryan J. Salva. I am a product manager over on the Visual Studio team at Microsoft. Uh, Specifically, my team works on JavaScript mobile development, so anything having to do with Apache Cordova, React Native, and even occasionally NativeScript, or any other crazy framework that you guys think of to deliver deliver mobile apps to using JavaScript. I'm a JavaScript developer myself of about oh, 15, 16 years now, and I've uh, been with Microsoft for only five of those. Before that, I was an entrepreneur, had a couple of startups, a little bit of success there, spent a lot of time in web development. Uh, so I love geeking out about anything having to do with web technologies.
1: Great. Sounds like we got a lot of cool stuff we can go over. Oh, it does. Yeah, we're... Today we're going to talk about Cordova and yeah. tell us a little bit about that project.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. So a lot of people have probably heard about Cordova. It's been around as a technology or a framework for about six years now. It was originally developed by the Natobi Corporation out of Vancouver, Canada and under the name PhoneGap. Uh, so a lot of people, when they hear PhoneGap or Cordova, they think, you know, what's the difference between the two? The fact of the matter is, is that PhoneGap and Cordova are essentially synonymous. What it is as a technology is it's a way of taking a web application, a JavaScript-based application, packaging all of those web assets up and putting them inside of a native wrapper, Uh, so that when you deliver the native APK to the Android device, what you're actually seeing is a full-screen web view, Uh, so all of your UI is rendered via HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, but then there is a bridge in between the web part, the web view piece of it, and native code running on the other side, so that you still get access to things like and on camera or accelerometer or address book or any of that good kind of stuff. You still have access to all of your device capabilities. You still have the ability to you know, support offline scenarios because all of the web tech, the HTML, CSS and JavaScript is ultimately packaged with the application. It's really just a way for JavaScript developers to participate in the mobile app economy without having to abandon the languages that they love.
1: Okay, so you talked about Android and APK. In the iOS world, you're actually creating an app, and that's being rendered in, say, a UI web view?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's the the same across all of them. You've essentially got a full-screen web view, which is
1: rendered using, as
2: you might expect, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And then in both cases, there is still native code that can run. Those native code is bundled using these things called plugins. Uh, Plugin is essential just a uh, componentized bit of native code that gives you access to uh, a native device capable like camera or accelerometer or address book. And then your HTML application that's sitting in that web view uses a common JavaScript API to access the native code so that in the end, you're able to use the same common shared code base across both Android, iOS, and Windows and use, you know, a single, Navigator dot camera dot picture method, but when it's deployed to Android or iOS or Windows, it invokes the appropriate native code for that platform. Uh, so the camera plugin will be written in Java and the or on Android and on iOS it will be written in Objective C, and in Windows it'll be written in C sharp. So. Ultimately, this is really just enabling developers to leverage the languages that they love or, you know, if they love JavaScript, stay with their web development tools, but still participate in kind of the mobile app economy.
1: Okay. So in the continuum of how we develop software that runs on mobile apps, we have, you know, native applications that run iOS, Android, or we have a web application which just runs on a web server and just run in your browser – this sounds like it sits in the middle. You're actually downloading an app, but internally it's it's running a UI web view and everything is happening in HTML. So you're not dealing with the native controls, uh, but you do have access to some hardware. You talked about the camera and different things like that. That sound right? Exactly correct.
2: Yeah, that's, that's precisely correct. And in fact, that's why these types of applications end up being called hybrid applications. They are a hybrid between native and web. Significantly, there are ways to actually invoke native UI controls. For example, developers can leverage things like the ACE plugin, which allows you to invoke, let's say, a tab control or a, um, a slide-in uh, navigation menu, something like that. So... There are ways that you can actually kind of pull from the best of both worlds, UI constructed using HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and UI constructed via the native layer. That's kind of advanced techniques, if you will, more so than than mainline
1: scenarios. Okay, so you do have some access to native controls, buttons, table view, if you need to have that type of functionality. That's exactly. Cool.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think what it really allows you to do is it allows you then to leverage, let's say that you've got Let's say it's a product list. Let's say you've got like a like a commerce type of app, a retail app, and you've got a product list that is you know a bunch of men's shirts. Let's say, well, there's no reason that that long list of just what if usually are just JPEG images along with a little bit of text, why that can't be HTML, CSS, and JavaScript across all of your deployment targets, both going to mobile applications and going to web applications. But then when you've got some kind of marquee experience some sort of you know ubiquitous navigation or some kind of like home page kind of, uh, or, you know, home view, entry view, that you want to be super slick and have really fluid animations and you want it to really feel like the native platform, that's when you invoke that bit of native UI. And so you can maximize then your code sharing and eliminate kind of replication of code across deployment targets, but then still have really slick custom UI that provides a unique experience based upon the device and the platform that you're using.
1: Okay. So you can get some native features if you want to drill into that. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. If you can just go native, why are we even looking at hybrid solutions? Why is that a cool thing?
2: Really, for me personally, in my own projects, there's two really big benefits and those cascade out into a bunch of, of smaller kind of pieces. So really... Benefit number one is that I can eliminate redundancy in my code and I don't have to rewrite the code multiple times for different deployment targets. Being able to consolidate into a single code base allows me to get to market faster. It also allows me to minimize my development costs And it minimizes my maintenance costs over time. All of that, those are huge. Beyond that, like I said earlier, I'm I'm a JavaScript developer of, of many years, and I'm pretty gosh darn comfortable in JavaScript. And so being able to kind of lay down my code both on the back end using node and on the front end using javascript on on the client side of things it allows me to leverage the skills that i am most familiar with most effective with and you know that's me as an individual as a as a developer but i also talk to a lot of companies that find themselves in a position where Their entire team, because, you know, the web has been around for 30 years now. And a lot of the applications that organizations have built have been browser based when they need to move to mobile app. Development. All of their skills are rooted in web technologies, and so as they try to make that transition from kind of browser-based applications, web applications to mobile applications, it really helps ease that transition between kind of the two the two worlds. If you add on top of that the fact that, frankly, in a lot of job markets, the number of developers who really have deep skills in native technologies, it's Far fewer than the number of skilled web developers out there, and the native app developers who are available are often coming at a much higher price than the web application developers. And so, it's much easier, and there's just like a there's a larger number of web developers to draw from for organizations to to kind of to be effective quickly.
1: Okay, yeah, sounds like. There, are, I mean, what you're saying is true. There, there are a ton of JavaScript developers. JavaScript has become ubiquitous, especially over the last, you know, five years or so. Even though it's been pretty popular before that, I think you know, after the nuclear holocaust comes, we're gonna have cockroaches and JavaScript. I think that's
2: cockroaches and JavaScript developers.
1: That's, I like, that, I that, like it. That's what's left. Yep.
2: Well, you know, and like I kind of alluded it to a little bit there, but the whole full stack thing, being able to use JavaScript both on uh, your server side and on your client side, that also just helps an awful lot when it comes time to like to put together your team. Then you don't need strongly different skill sets for your client side developer and your service developer. The same guy can do double time, can do double duty. And that's not just a matter of efficiency of your workforce. But I don't know about you, but in order for me to build a a good application, it really helps for me to know what's happening both on the server side, on the service side, and on the client side. I've got a, a better view of what the total kind of app architecture looks like then, and that allows me as a developer to write more efficient code. And so that's a big plus from my point of view.
1: Yeah, definitely. If you can... Use at least use the same language on the server side and client side. That's a huge win. That's something we're hoping for with it, with Swift. I don't. think That's not going to happen for Objective C, but it's a benefit. But how much of a benefit is it really? Because you know, web development, developing APIs, server stuff. It's a certain mindset, certain set of patterns, and client development is very different. How much? Yeah. Code, how, how much code reuse are you seeing in in practice?
2: There's a couple of different angles to look at this. So there is a difference here, totally agree, between building a website and a mobile client. Those are, I don't say they're worlds apart, but they are very different things. I think that there, you do see a lot more commonalities between building a web app and a mobile client as a lot of kind of web applications have moved closer to a single page architecture then the amount of code sharing and code reuse that you can see between your your web distribution channel and your mobile app distribution channel can climb up there to the 70 to 80% range i think more so than anything else particularly for developers who are coming from a browser based kind of a web Based application, it's being able to share their, I'll call it their business logic, less so than it is the UI layer. Let's say, I don't know, let's take a canonical example of moving. Oh God, I hate using this example, but we'll use an, an expense app, right? In a line of business scenario. That expense app, it's probably been there for 15 years and the whole thing needs to be kind of rebuilt from scratch anyways. But So long as you've got some decent service based APIs, the transfer of skills from that browser based deployment target to the web one, it's a lot easier for those developers to just kind of say, all right, pick it up. I can now make some better decisions about my architecture on the mobile client. I may be starting from scratch or close to scratch, but at least when I'm picking up and starting to write again and build that app. I can do so without also having to shoulder the burden of learning a new language or a new technology at the same time. I can at least stay in kind of a JavaScript coding model and that allows me again to get the application built quickly to use the exact same code base to all three of the major platforms out there, the iOS and the Androids and the Windows of the worlds. And that speed to market and reduced maintenance cost over time really kind of pays off dividends, even if the amount of code sharing that I'm doing between my brand new shiny mobile client and my expense app that's 10 or 15 years old even if there's not a whole lot of code sharing there, I'm able to get there quickly and able to do get there in a way that eliminates redundancy of code between the disparate platforms. So I'm not having to rewrite it two or three times.
1: Okay. That makes sense. And if you're coming from a JavaScript background where you're doing web development, web development, as you said, is getting heavy client side patterns, which can mimic what we're doing on mobile clients. And you know, there, if you're, coming from a JavaScript background and going to write a native app, an iOS app, you have to learn two things. You have to learn UI kit, which takes a while. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a mind meld if you're coming from different. And you also have to learn the language, which Swift or Objective-C. Yep. And Swift yep. is probably a
2: little bit. I'll, I'll add to that. You've also then got to learn a new, um, a, a new IDE as well. You got to switch to Xcode. And, uh, you know, not that Xcode isn't great. I, I love it. But for someone who's coming to it for the first time, Having to kind of switch around their muscle memory and learn a new development environment, there's the cost of that as well.
1: Okay, but this you know this allows a lot more developers to get up, uh, a mobile app up and running. Yep. One of the drawbacks I've seen with the phone cap, and I think most of our audience are native iOS developers, so when they hear phone gap, yeah. they probably throw up a little bit in their mouth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just got to I got to re- represent their viewpoint before. No,
2: totally, totally.
1: You know. We started seeing PhoneGap apps three, four years ago, and we've really seen some really bad apps. Um, oh, yeah, Performance has is... been just awful. Table views yep. that barely scroll. So, I mean, there's a performance hit with rendering the stuff in JavaScript versus using, you know, the native controls.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. And you know what? Your, your audience would be totally right there. You know, the, to go in between from a really well-written Objective-C or Swift app and then say, you know what? I can compare that apples to apples to a PhoneGap Cordova app. You're totally right. The chances of seeing uh, performance differences or even subtle UI differences are strong. Like you're you're going to notice a difference there. I think that it's the trade-off that you make between having to rewrite the app multiple times and seeing a slightly different performance characteristic or slightly different user experience characteristics. And a lot of that depends upon the type of the app that you're writing. I kind of think about this particularly in light of if you're trying to make your entire living, if your business is making all of its revenue 99 cents at a time through app store purchases or in-app purchases, then you know what? It probably is going to pay off for you to build that app and native code completely agree go for it do it but if your business is really making their money selling widgets elsewhere right and the app that you're building is either an employee facing app a business-facing app, and you're really just trying to kind of mitigate the cost of app development and get something out there that is effective or that is that is cost-effective and while at the same time being functional, uh, something like Cordova PhoneGap is an excellent choice. I would also add to that, let's say I do this all the time. Let's say that you've got an idea for an app right? And you're not entirely sure if it's got any traction. You know, you're just trying to get an MVP out there to see if this is an app worth building. If you wanted to throw together a solid MVP, a good prototype, and do it in one or two days... Cordova, PhoneGap, again, another great choice here. And that way you can at least get something into the store, get it there quickly, get some user feedback. And then if it looks like that app has got legs and you're ready to kind of build out something that's a little bit more luxe, then go for it. Throw away the old code that you wrote the Cordova app in and rebuild it again using native languages. That's a totally reasonable strategy as well. Now, I think a lot of... Cordova's sweet spot again is being able to leverage the kind of rich amount of resources that are available to kind of the web community being able to leverage that to cut and paste, build something quickly, get it out and and not have to worry so much about the long-term maintenance split across multiple platforms. Like the primary value proposition here, like the reason for doing it, is that you want to share code amongst multiple platforms at a low cost and want to do it quickly. That's when Cordova really, really shines. But then when you're ready to kind of become a, you know, top 10 app in the store, hell yeah. Convert over to native at that point, because at that hopefully you've proven your um, your business model by that point, and you're ready to invest in a more premium experience.
1: That's a good point. One thing I I bring up with a lot of my clients is that you know don't spend money until you know this is a product that people want to use. Totally, you know that, that completely makes sense to me. So if you can crank something out quickly and just verify what you're doing, that's totally valid and. You know, it may need to be a native solution at the end game, but to choose the different approaches, you know, do something something quick with Cordova or go native, you know, I feel there's like there's a continuum. You know, know, if if you're Facebook, you want people using your app every day, you want them swiping through things and doing all sorts of crazy things. I mean, that has to be native. It would never go to Cordova. On the other spectrum, if you have a captive audience that needs to use what you're building or they want to, they need the info. I mean, they'll use whatever you have. I mean, if there's yeah. bugs, if it crashes, they don't care.
2: You yeah, know, anyway, yeah. So. Well, you know, and I mean, hopefully you're not deploying bugs and crashes. I mean, there's I, – I don't, I don't want to paint an unfair um, picture of Cordova that it is a buggy framework. It is not in and of itself. It's actually very stable.
1: But, I, I did, I but didn't you're quite, right. I didn't mean Cordova. Yeah. I just mean like if people want to use your app need that info, they'll put up with whatever they have to.
2: Yeah, you know? so, yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, yeah. a few years ago, I there was like one college hockey app on the app store and it was phone gap or something like that and it was awful you know it was probably jQuery mobile phone gap performance was terrible Mm -hmm. but you know it was the only app that had that info so I used it yep yeah totally checked out my gopher scores and (laughs) uh, and they they went native a, a year or two later but you know, if people want to use it, they'll use it.
2: Yeah, and then like by that point, they had proven it out that people like you would use the app, they would see the ads or whatever kind of monetization strategy they were using, and they were ready to, to kind of graduate up out of it. I mean, it really just depends. Like, Do you want to invest all of the time up front, especially if you're trying to target multiple different app stores? Do you want to invest all the time up front to write it twice or three times? If you don't, Hey, this is a really great option to test out an idea to see if it's got legs. And to be fair, there, there actually are some, some unique advantages to kind of the JavaScript ecosystem here. And, and the big one, this one gets played up an, an awful lot by the React native community, uh, but it applies equally well to Cordova apps as well. One of the, I don't know, one of the shackles that we have as native app developers is that anytime we want to submit an update to the store, we have to just do that. We have to resubmit it to the store. And I don't know about you, but my experience has been, especially with the Apple Store, that can often take days before I actually kind of get the app update through. And that time, if, especially if you've got a crashing bug or something like that, can be black death to your ratings. And so one of the unique advantages that JavaScript apps like React Native and like Cordova and like NativeScript have is that you can update your app dynamically without resubmitting to the store. There's a clause in the Apple developer agreement that basically says, uh, oh man, I'm going to forget exactly what the legalese is, but it essentially says you can update web assets without resubmitting to the store because, of course, apps like Yelp and Facebook and well, pretty much everything else out there needs to be able to get data and images and things like that dynamically. And so what that does is that opens up something of a loophole for Cordova React Native developers whose entire application is written using JavaScript. And it enables them to essentially replace the entire contents of their dub 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 folder that is packaged locally with the app. And so if you've got a bug fix or an update or an incremental feature enhancement that you want to deliver, so long as you're not changing the fundamental purpose of the application, you can use a service like CodePush or I think PhoneGap Hydration or Ionic deploy or any one of these other kind of essentially update services to replace the entire contents of your www directory and fix that bug deliver that new feature do whatever you need to do and do it at the same kind of release cadence that we expect out of the web if you want to deploy updates two three four times a day Go at it, buddy. It's all yours to do. And that's a place where I think that, you know, we talked a little bit about code sharing earlier and how that, you know, can save time and effort and reduce code redundancy. Those are all great and important things. But the ability to update and you know to your deployed applications, that's something that uniquely and only JavaScript powered apps can do. And I think that's a pretty awesome thing.
1: Yeah, it's one of the Achilles' heel, at least in the Apple ecosystem, where you're yeah. dependent on the App Store to give you the thumbs up for anything that you want to change, which you know takes time, days, exactly, or, or weeks. Less of a problem with with Android because you can just throw it out there if you need to. Yep. So how how yep. does update work if the user is actively using your app and they're going through it and you update the you know the JavaScript? Does that happen? Yeah. How, does that happen on app launch or how does that work?
2: Yeah, so it's it's really totally up to the developer. The basic workflow looks like this. I've submitted my app to the store for the first time. You know, it's got to be in the store for people to download it the first time. And when I submit it to the store, I include the native code to kind of process the update. Um, I'm going to use CodePush as my example because it's it's kind of my personal favorite. Then when you're ready to submit an update, what you'll essentially do is you will zip up the web assets that you want to deploy and you'll upload them to the code push service. From on the client side, it is the developer's decision what event they want to ping the server for. Usually you'll use an app lifecycle event like on resume or on device ready, but you could also make it on a button push or you could even have something running in the background that checks every minute if you wanted to so whatever app lifecycle event you use what will happen then is then your mobile client will ping the code push service and when it pings the code push service it'll essentially part of that asynchronous call it will include what its current version number is so let's say it pings the code push service and says i currently have app version 1.1 code push will say oh hey i've got a 1.2 available at that point It will return a response back to your mobile client and your mobile client can then decide what it wants to do. There's lots of options that you can use. Like, for example, you can make the app update mandatory or you can make it optional. You can make the update only deploy to a um, percentage of your users. If you want to do like A B testing for different types of features, or even if you want to incrementally roll out updates, so that you're doing a little bit of test in production and just deploying to maybe 5% of your user base before you go out to right. everyone Cowboy to make proof. sure that you're exactly exactly but then at that point the user experience the you know people actually using your apps the most common thing is that you'll get a little um, you know a dialogue that says version 1.2 is available would you like to install you say okay and uh, at that point, You've got two options. You can either force a restart of the app once the download is complete and it's done, or you can let them wait until the next time that they naturally restart their app to replace the contents of the dub 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 folder. It does re- require a restart of the app, but then there's all sorts of safety checks that you can also put in there to make sure that the actual contents of that zip folder were completely downloaded in a non-corrupt fashion and were correctly installed in the dub 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 folder. So, one of the things that I love about the code push service is that it also allows me to essentially rewind the clock if either the contents were not successfully downloaded or even I delivered an update that I decided I didn't like because there was a crashing bug in it or something like that. I can rewind the clock, and from an end user's experience, all that they see is a little dialogue that says, um, You know, you can change the language, but this update didn't work. We're rolling you back to version 1.1. And so that gives me a lot of confidence that. What is installed on end users' machines or on on their mobile devices is something that's actually working and that they're not stuck in some kind of weird in-between state that doesn't allow them to use the app. And that's particularly when you're doing dynamic updates and if you move to a cadence where where you're making those updates frequently, having that kind of confidence is super important that the service is taking care of it for you to make sure that they can always get back to a last known good
1: state. Okay, that sounds good. I wanted to talk a little bit more about performance because I've mentioned that okay. most native developers, when they think of, you know, PhoneGap, they think of these, the awful apps we've talked about previously. Yeah. Since then, over the past year or two, I've been noticing apps that aren't native, but don't really make my eyes bleed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sure. they're, they're usable. If you click on a button, you know, it's not quite. The same or scrolling animations decelerations are usually not the same, but it, it's a usable app and I just can you talk about like ways things have changed over the past three years or so
2: yeah, yeah, totally so first if if i um if I painted the picture earlier that phone delivered or Cordova universally delivers a subpar experience, then thank you for giving me the opportunity to to correct that. You're absolutely right that within the last two years in particular is what I've noticed, but maybe as much as three. Like, developers have just gotten smarter It's part of it, and the hardware has also gotten faster. Those are really kind of the two channels. On the hardware getting faster side of things, with uh, what was that, I guess, uh, iOS 9, they, I think it's iOS 9, Apple Allowed you to actually implement some of the acceleration that you expect out of normal browsers in the embedded web view. And so on iOS in particular, from a hardware perspective, uh, or at least from a, from a browser perspective, that has gotten way better, particularly in the last year. From a developer, developer's getting smarter perspective. This is actually where I think the the largest leaps and bounds have come, especially as we got a a kind of a spade of JavaScript frameworks that weren't just, you know, adapting from a browser-based framework to a web client or to a mobile client, but they're actually JavaScript frameworks intended specifically for mobile app development. Probably the two or three most popular of these are Onsen UI, Kendo UI, and Ionic. The one that I end up probably using the most often is Ionic. Those guys have done a really, really fantastic job focusing on building high-performance apps that adapt to the native UI of their destination platform. And so, I mean, you know, building performant UI controls like It takes time. It takes, like, you know, actually a lot of time spent analyzing frames per second and can you optimize this for loop a little and how can you get the right inertia or gravity out of your, your list scrolling. And most app developers don't want to spend time doing that. They want to spend time, you know, doing the fun, creative stuff, right? And so as we've gotten frameworks like Ionic, where their entire focus is on just on building out native-like controls using HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, that's put application developers in a place where they can just leverage and kind of build on the shoulders of those JavaScript frameworks, those UI control frameworks. And when they want a an infinite scroll list view or they want a tab control, they just have to invoke a tab control, like these are the UI components that come like already, you know, available in your native SDKs. And for the longest time, web applications, you know, they had div tags and span tags. They essentially had rectangles. There was no tab control, no navigation control. And so what frameworks like Ionic and Onsen have done is they've essentially created the, web equivalent of these native SDK controls so that when an application developer wants them, they can just put in that web component and be done. And they don't end up, this is, this is what, you know, when you see all of those really, um, pardon my language, shitty apps out there with terrible performance. You know, what's often happening is that's a web app developer who's done copy and paste code, and they've, they've brought in Angular, and they've brought in jQuery, and they've brought in React, and they've brought in Backbone, and they've just layered all these things on top of each other that have no business being in the same application developer, or in the same application together. And so as we've started to build out a sane architecture for what a good mobile app looks like using JavaScript, we've gotten better performance, out of these applications, and we've been able to to kind of build them more quickly as good recipes and good kind of boilerplate has arrived. And so, if you go to the like the showcase page for Cordova, cordova.apache.org, or the showcase page for Ionic, ionicframework.com, and you look at some of the apps that are built there, I'm willing to bet. A lot of you might even have some of those apps installed on your phone, and in some cases, may not have even realized that they were hybrid applications. Because they—they actually—they've they've gotten to a place where, unless you're really looking for it, the differences can be very minute.
1: Uh, that's definitely true. I was talking with an entrepreneur a week or two ago, and another was sitting with another developer, a native developer, and they were showing his app off. And it's like I asked him, "Oh, is it is it native? Is it hybrid?" And, the entrepreneur didn't really know, uh, you know, the CTO <laughs> took care of it. And, and the other person I was sitting with was like, yeah, I think this is native and like, okay. And I looked at it and you no, know, it wasn't after I took a closer look, like, no, no, nope, so these things aren't right. And it was, I wasn't sure what they're using, but you know, definitely you can trick a lot of things and yeah. the performance things are, are subtle and I don't want to discount how important those little small things are, especially if people are using your app, day in day out for a lot of things if that's your core business but for a lot of things you just want to do one thing and get on with your life
2: yeah yeah I, i recently downloaded a uh it's a noise maker app. Like it's you know it like does when I go to sleep it like has waves or it has white noise in the background kind of thing. And uh, lo and behold, I am I used it for a couple of weeks. It's a simple UI, but I thought it was a native app. And uh, then I found out that uh, no, it's actually a Cordova app. I had no idea. But as a developer, if you make the best use of your technology and you have good design sensibilities out of you i think in the end what end users care about is have you displayed craftsmanship in your application and it is just as easy to create a bad native application as it is to create a bad cordova application but if you're a responsible developer if you care about your craft if you spend time on your ui You can create something that users are going to love, but, you know, it takes mindfulness. And I know that Cordova PhoneGap has gotten a bad reputation in the past because there were a lot of developers who weren't really being mindful, who weren't really kind of displaying craftsmanship because they were just trying to get something functional out there quickly. And that that makes us all look bad.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I I wanted to talk a little bit briefly because we're running a little bit short on time. Sure. About the development process. So if you're trying to build for iOS, are you still bringing up Xcode? Or what's the development environment like?
2: Oh, yeah, totally. So your primary tools are going to be a text editor, command line interface, and you know your device or emulator deployment target. For me, my primary editor is Visual Studio Code, in part because I work on it. As a program manager for Visual Studio, I build it. But also because it's just a wicked awesome development environment. It's got nice IntelliSense and code hinting, and it's super fast, and it's got integrated debugging. Then uh, at the command line, that's kind of where you're really going to leverage the Cordova build tool itself. And then you know your device, whatever the deployment target is. Point of fact, while many developers may go into Xcode or may go into Android Studio at some point in their development process, of the time, you're never even opening up the native development tools, or at least you don't need to open up the native development tools. When you will eventually go to Xcode, for example, is when you're doing your signing and kind of your provisioning. But other than that, ultimately, Cordova is interfacing with Xcode and kind of farming out the build process to Xcode for iOS or Androids, uh, the Android SDK for Android, or to the Windows SDK for, for Windows. But Cordova, as a build tool, takes care of that for you. So... All of your active coding time really happens in your text editor of choice. Most JavaScript developers, as I'm sure you're well aware, end up preferring some kind of lightweight thing like Atom or Sublime or VS Code or Vim. And then your debugging tools... A lot of folks choose to use Chrome for their primary debugger. All the code that you're writing is, you know, it's usually HTML, CSS, and JavaScript that you're using, or one of their variants, like TypeScript or SAS. So,
1: so if you're debugging yeah. in Chrome, do you end up having any differences when you actually go to device? Is that something you have to manage?
2: No. Oh, uh, you attach to the web view in the device. So you may run it in the device. You, you know, you deploy to your Android device, and then you bring up Chrome and you can attach the Chrome debugger to the web view that's running on your tethered Android device.
1: Okay. Got it.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And then in the case of, like I said, my primary editor is VS Code. So in that case, there's actually a debugger that's built into the editor. And so the same principle applies. I'm attaching to whatever my deployment device is. And so sometimes... Uh, I mean, like, you know, I can deploy to the emulator, I can deploy to the device, but a lot of developers will spend a significant percentage of their workflow deploying to a browser. And in that case, your question is totally apt. Will there be kind of UI differences or just differences, period, between the browser and the Android device? And there, yes, absolutely, there will be differences. But that's why... You know, when you're doing your initial development on the browser, that's for kind of like the macro level, you know, layout construction, want to make sure that the business logic is working correctly, that kind of thing. You know, your last 20 yards pretty much always happen in the device itself.
1: Okay, great. So we're running down time. Is there anything else you want to talk about or mention about Cordova?
2: No, I mean, I think that we've covered a lot of pieces of it. I would say that for developers who are particularly coming from native and are already super comfortable working with Swift or Objective-C or Java, The time for you to pick up Cordova is really going to be maybe when you're trying to take that new idea and test it with users, or if you're trying to take your app and see if maybe it will also kind of have the same kind of momentum in another app store. Let's say that you're already deployed to Apple, the Apple store, and you want to see if it's going to have legs in Google, Android, Play Store. Well, hey, you know what? Cordova is a great way for you to test it out and get it out there quickly. And then from there, graduate it up to the next level, right? And for organizations that really aren't trying to make their business 99 cents at a time, but they're just trying to deliver a line of business application, Cordova is another great option for getting an app out there quickly to as many devices as possible with as little upfront and long-term maintenance costs as possible.
1: Alright, great. No, it's a great overview of Cordova and I haven't been really keeping up on it. Only, only listen to the, the gripes of iOS, native iOS developers. So it's good to, hear <laughs> good to hear the other side and that people are having success with it. And with yeah. some apps, you know, they're usable and you can, you can get by with it. Yeah. So we're going to get to the picks today. I'll give
2: you I'll give you 2 if you don't mind. I've got one thing that I've been playing with a lot recently, which is the Microsoft Bot Framework. As a side project, I've been building chatbots recently. And this last what's your last month, Microsoft released a new framework just with like artificial intelligence. It plugs into the same system that Cortana uses, and it has allowed is allowing
1: me to a- Windows Siri for. uh,
2: (laughs) Yeah, uh, Windows Siri. Exactly. Exactly. And it has allowed me to build a really killer bot with with AI and natural language recognition in a relatively short period of time. Anyone who wants to check it out, I would say just um, Google or Bing or whatever your favorite search engine is, Lycos, your uh, Microsoft chat bot. Other than the Swearing racist uh, Twitter chatbot. It should be one of the first uh, ones to come up in your um, in your search results. And then beyond that, I got to give a self plug here. I just last week started to pick up blogging again. I hadn't been doing it for a super long time. And if folks want to learn a little bit about Cordova, go check out my my blog BrianJSalva.com. There's a couple of tutorials on there, and might be a fun exercise for folks.
1: Okay. Great. Yeah, I I definitely was impressed with the bot's as our listeners are aware, we were all out at Build a month ago, but uh, yeah, we got to see the bot functionality. Uh, it's really cool and really cool to, to see another way to get information to people without you know the heavy weightness of downloading an app and things like that. So I'm looking forward to seeing what develops from that. Hoping, yeah. Hoping Apple delivers something at this dub dub. But I'm going to get to my picks and I don't have much of a pick, but speaking of bots and automatic stuff, I've been chuckling at the people trying to connect with me on Skype with the names I don't think they're real, but in the case that Diamond Star Snoopy and Glitz Licious Fancy Pants are real people, sorry for, for blocking you. But I, I I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm chuckling at the names that are coming at me at, on my Skype. So whatever bot is coming up with those names, I'm laughing.
2: Awesome sauce. I love
1: it. So Ryan, thanks for so much for coming on the show. We tried recording at build and they actually kicked us out of the room because the whole, whole conference was being shut down. That's just how it works some days. So it's great yeah. that you get, you're able to come back. And I think we learned a lot about Cortana today. So thanks for coming on the show.
2: Awesome, buddy. Hey, thank you so much. We'll t- see you again.
0: All right. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.